All right, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it further. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we ask uh, what we ask every week, that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit, that you have authored these words, and so we pray that you would be their great teacher and applier that you would open our hearts up to understand it, to hear it, and to believe it. Uh, We need it. Whether we recognize it or not, we need it. So would you you do good? Uh, We know that you will, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, you've no doubt had a a moment like this in your life, some moment where you have been, uh, you've been presented with some sort of information, and you, you know that it's big, you know it's significant, but you're just not sure what to do with it, right? Probably had something like that. Uh, an example that comes to mind, um, let's see, this was uh, February of 2013. I came home on a Monday night from a Bible study that I was doing. This is when we lived in Louisville. Come home, and I say, see Amy, I say, hey, how are you? Kids are asleep. Uh, and she says, well, I'm pretty good, but I'm having uh, the contraction. I'm having contractions, and they're like five minutes apart. And they've been, uh, they, they last for however many seconds, she told me. I'm like, okay, I know that this is big information, but I don't really know what to do with it, right? And in my defense, our first two kids had been, had been induced. So in other words, we had never been, you know, somewhere other than the hospital when the contraction started and all that, right? So, you know, I, does that mean, like, we need to go right now? So I'm just looking at Amy like, all right, what do we do? And Amy says, she knows what to do. She says, this means we need to find someone to keep our kids. We need to pack some clothes and we need to go to the hospital. It's time. Okay? So you get the idea. You've probably been in some situation like that. I know that's a big deal. Just maybe not exactly like that. Like that in the sense that you've been faced with some information that you know is a big deal. If, it, if you have, it's okay. We're glad you're here. Uh, you know it's a big deal, but, but what do you do with that information? That is what Paul really essentially is doing in this passage. If you were with us for the last two weeks that we've had RUF, you know that we, we looked at the, the previous passage, we spent two weeks on it, where Paul talks about this amazing truth. He basically, it's one of the most beautiful summations of the gospel in the Bible. Paul basically says, he basically holds up Jesus and says, look, Jesus 
was, is, and always will be God Himself. He gave up the glory of heaven, humbled Himself, obedient to His Father, and He came to this earth, and He was obedient even to the point of death. And then God raised Him from the dead and exalted Him and has the name above every name. And He did it because He loves you. And so he, it's like He lays this huge truth out there. And it's almost like you could picture the Philippians like thinking, I know that that's a big deal. So what do we do with it? And that's what Paul says in our passage. You could think of it like this. It's the so what of what he's just talked about. It's so big and here's what you do with it. Here's what you do now. You know, this semester we're studying through Philippians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. And every week we've seen that it's a letter that's filled with joy. Paul really uniquely loves these Philippians. And he's basically telling them all about the joy that he has in Christ and the joy that can be theirs in Christ. Even though he's in prison, even though things aren't going the way they want them to in their church. And so our theme is real joy. And yet in the midst of real life. And what we see, what I want you to see tonight... That basically Paul says, look, here's what you do now. Obey God. What do you do in light of this enormous and beautiful truth? Obey God. Obedience. And there's actually real joy to be found in obedience. So that's what we're going to look at tonight three, along three lines. First, we're going to see that our obedience... Uh, that it requires our work. It requires our effort. Secondly, we're going to see that our effort, our work, rests on God's work. And then thirdly and finally, we're going uh, to take a look at what true obedience really looks like. Okay, so first, obedience requires our work or our effort. Verse 12, again, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That might sound strange to you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as we, as we head into tonight, when I say that our, our title essentially is Joy and Obedience, I wonder what comes to your mind. When I say, here, we're gonna, tonight we're going to talk about obedience. Following God's law, Right? What comes to your mind? Because it's something that that Christians have thought very differently about in all different angles. You might be sitting there and think, you might be excited about it. It's about time we finally talk about keeping the rules. He talks too much about that grace, grace, grace. Or you might uh, might be a little uh, nervous about it, scared about it, and thinking like, oh man, of all nights, it's going to make me feel so guilty. Or you might, uh, you might be mad about it and thinking, oh, wait a minute, I, I don't want you to get away from that grace stuff. And so if we're going to talk about obedience, that, that just doesn't seem fair, seem right. So what is it? Because it, you know, if you think about it, it really can, it can be confusing. If I asked you, is the Christian life about doing good things? Is Christianity about following God's law? What would you say? In some sense, it's kind of a hard question, right? You can answer it in a whole lot of different ways. 
And so as we dive in to talk about obedience, I want you to, I want you to hear this one thing. And if you, if you fall asleep or don't catch anything else, hear this. You have to understand that when that Paul's talking about obedience, it comes in a context. And it comes in the context of what we just said. It comes in the context of the gospel. So in other words, that last week, right, Paul says this following what he said in the passage just above. He says, basically, that God loves people for free. That God saves you, and it is absolutely by His grace. It is nothing that you do. You don't earn His love in any way. It's purely by grace. It's only because Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to this earth and humbled Himself and died for you. That, broadly speaking, is what the Bible calls justification. That God declares you to have the righteousness of Jesus what we often think of as salvation. It's how you get into the family of God, so to speak. So you have to keep in mind that truth. That it's only after that he has has well established the truth of the gospel that he begins to talk about obedience. Right? He's speaking to Christians. And it's to them, after laying out the gospel... That he says, so now, in light of that, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. Right? Because you could read Galatians and read all about how Paul just you know, hammers on the fact that it's not about your works. And here, Paul says, you need to work. <laughs> so what's the deal? And that's what I want you to catch That it comes in the context of the gospel that Paul, when he talks about justification, you're saved purely by grace. But here, Paul talks about our sanctification. That we're saved by grace, but it involves our effort. It really does require us to exert effort. Right? The order in Christianity is of the utmost importance. Christianity, every, in a sense, you could probably boil down every religion to say something like, if you do this, if you follow God or the higher power, then you, know, you will have favor. But Christianity is really exactly the opposite. It says you have God's favor absolutely for free. So now because of that, work, obey God, do good things. And that requires our effort. So the question is, what, is it, what does he mean? What does that word mean when he says to work out our salvation? What does that mean? Well, it's basically the idea, it's the idea of, of drawing something out, right? Pulling out your salvation for all that it's worth. Um, pulling out what's already there and bringing it out, developing it. Here's my illustration. I think you can think about it like this. It's a little bit like marriage. Right? When you get married, if, you ask, if you're going to get married, you ask me to do your wedding, I'm honored, thank you. And at the very end, I'm going to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I make a proclamation about you in the name of God. 
And something is now true about you. The two of you are now married. You were very single, and now you are married. Two have become one. And that's true of you, right? I've made a declaration, kind of like how God does with justification. You are forgiven. You have the righteousness of Christ. It's just now true about you. All right. So that's true about you right then. It's your reception, right? 60 minutes later, you are as married as you can get. But think about the couple that's been married for 60 years. They are exactly the same married as you are. And yet, they're probably not the same, right? Like, how good are you after 60 minutes or 60 days? How good are you at living as what has been declared about you? How good are you at living as two people as one? Does that make sense? Kind of stuttering there. You're, You're... If you've been doing it for 60 years, you've had to work at it. And so when you get get married, when when the preacher pronounces that declaration, from then on, you are married, but what are you going to do? You're going to go out and you're going to work. Marriage is real work. You have to work, draw out what's true. He said that we, the two of us are now one, and now we've got to pull that out. We've got to work for it. We've got to, we've got to work to forgive one another. I've got to work to learn what makes you happy. I've got to work to lay down my life for your life. It's already true, but now you're going to live in light of it. And that is what Paul's saying here, that if you're a believer, he says, you are, you are a child of God. You are saved. Now draw that out. Live like it's true. What's the, well, we've talked about it. What's the reality of a Christian? That you are loved and adored by God, that he's declared you to be righteous. And now grow into that. All right, what does that mean for us? Some applications quickly. We've got to move tonight. Way too much to say. Handful of things, applications. One, it means that to work out your salvation means that you pull it out into every area of your life. That it doesn't just exist in your devotional life or at church. But you've got to work out your salvation. Maybe it's like a math problem. right? You've got to show your work. You've got to to pull out the truth that's there. And you've got to pull that in every area of your life. No area can exist on its own. Your your sexuality, your studies, your, uh, your friendships, your relationships, all of it. You've got to work to pull it into every area. Secondly... It means that you and I actually have to try, we have to exert effort to put sin to death. It means that you have to actually work at putting sin to death. In other words, you can't just think, well, the Bible says that God is going to change me, which it does. And so I guess I'll just kind of hang out and like one day Jesus will change me and I won't want to do that bad thing. And so until then... Paul, to that, Paul in the Bible would say, no, no. You, you actually need to work. Expend effort. Right? It, it might look like a million things. It might look like getting rid of your uh, internet connection or your smartphone because, you, because of what you uh, are tempted to look at on there. It might look like uh, telling somebody else what you struggle with, whatever it is, and saying, I, I need to talk to you about this uh, every week. 
I need you to help me. It means that you need to actually work at thinking through, why do I do that? Why do I get so angry? Why do I fill in the blank? Go through the hard work. It requires our effort. It means that we need to actually try to live unto righteousness. That we need to work to do the right thing. Now that might look like a whole lot of different things, but it might, hear me, might look like that you actually begin to put some discipline. It will look like you put discipline in your life. Now what that discipline looks like varies. It might look like you say, you know what? I'm going to read my Bible at a certain time. It might look like that. But we need, to, we need to work. We need to live in light of what's true about us. And again, you can't forget what context it comes in, right? The context of the gospel. Because as you begin to do that, what you're going to find is that it's hard, right? And the good news is still the good news. That when you, when, when you fail, in a sense, it, it's okay. Or in other words, you're freed up to fail. You don't, have, you don't have God looking at you with his arms crossed, you know, going like, oh, seriously? You can't figure this out? You have the loving smile of the Father. All right, we've got to keep moving. Secondly, our work rests on God's work. So we're called to effort, to actually expend energy and try to work hard. But what we see next is that our work rests on God's work. Verse 13. For it is God's work, excuse me, let me read the Bible. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You don't need to take verse, tw- like nobody takes verse 12 by itself and tapes it up on their mirror, right? That w- like in and of itself, that would be bad. You need what comes before it, right? Nobody's waking up, if you, if you are, we need to talk. You don't wake up and say like, all right, work out my salvation, fear and trim, let's go get them. It, you need what comes before it and you need what comes after it. Because Paul doesn't end there with just work out your uh, salvation with fear and trembling. Because if he did, that fear and trembling means, it means you need to be working this out. And if you don't, God's going to get you. Does that make sense? Work out your salvation. And by the way, you might want to be a little nervous about that with fear and trembling. But no, that's not the point. Paul says, for or because it's God who works in you. So yeah, what's the relationship between our work and, and God's work? Because he, he's the one that ultimately has to do it, and yet he's calling me to effort. Right, I think we tend to, I think it's easy to think about the Christian life like God says, okay, I've saved you, like I got you, I've set you up, and now he kind of backs away like a Jenga game, and like, all right, look, don't fall over. Like, just, you're on your own now. And that's not the picture. Paul basically tells us here, He says, like, you have been saved by grace, so now work to keep keep God's law, to obey, because God's working in you to do it. Your efforts are supported by, they're, they're founded on God's working in you. We could sum it up like this. We work because God works. We're called to, if you notice, we're called to work out what God works in. All right, I think, here's my illustration. It's not perfect, but I think it's somewhat helpful. If you watch enough movies and TV, which I do, 
you will, no doubt you've seen the scene where uh, the, they're in the airplane and the pilot either dies or he's unconscious. Somebody's got to fly the plane and land it. You know this scenario. Some guy that, you know, from the back of the plane, never flown before, he volunteers. Right? This is, you're familiar with this. And so what do you do? You get on the, you know, radio with a guy on the ground that can help you land the plane. And he talks you through it. He, you know, he's a professional. He could land the plane if he was there. And so he talks you through it. And evidently, all you need to be is a normal functioning adult, and you can land a plane. It must not be hard because they never crash. I've never seen one in that scenario. So when they land that plane safely, which they always do, here's the question. Who landed, that pl- who landed the plane safely? Whose work was it? Uh, well, it's kind of hard, right? It was both. It was the guy flying the plane and the guy on the ground. But one was more foundational to the other. Does that make sense? The, the, guy, the guy in the airplane, he had to expend the effort. He had to be there to do it. But it would not work without that other guy. His work was, was founded on the guy on the ground. Hopefully that makes some sense. Again, it's not perfect. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that as we look at our lives and we, and we actually do strive to work, uh, to, to live a righteous life, as we strive for obedience, we can know that it's going to work. It means that you get to go out into your Christian life, so to speak, with the confidence that your efforts are founded on and supported and energized by God himself. I mean, what, what amazing confidence that gives you. That it's not, God doesn't just empower you some more, give you some more of you. I'll double your efforts. Paul says that God himself works in you, and that is where the fear and trembling comes in. Like, what's that whole fear and trembling part about? It's because God himself is working inside of you. Uh, one commentator I read uh, says this, that in the Old Testament, uh, these two nouns appear, here's this quote, almost as a stereotyped expression and usually refer to the fear of human beings in the presence of God and his mighty acts. You, are you familiar with this? In the Bible, it happens a lot. When, when God or uh, an angel shows up, a whole lot of the time, some of the first words out of their mouth is, don't be afraid. Fear not. And if you notice, nobody ever says, have you ever noticed how the angel keeps saying that? Like, what? that's so weird that he says. Why does he always tell us not to be afraid? They don't ever say that because they're terrified. Right? It's not weird for the angel or for God to say that because his presence is so awesome that to be in it as a sinner, it means you just come undone. And so when God shows up, he says, look, it, it, it's okay. Don't be afraid. And this is telling us that that power, the power of Almighty God, is inside of you working. But for the believer, get this. Here's another quote from a guy I read. It says, This is not the fear of a lost sinner before the Holy One, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to him. 
You see that? That that if you're a believer, both of those things are true. You have the, the confidence of knowing that the God that makes people afraid, just his presence makes people terrified because he's so powerful. You have the confidence of knowing that power is inside of you working to fight against your sin. And at the same time, you know that that he's not the, the overbearing, terrifying God. He, he is that, but he is your father. That you have his presence. Uh, you, have the, you have the presence of a father. That he's for you, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. So what does that mean, just real quick? It, it gives you the confidence to press on in the Christian life. When your heart tells you things like, why do you even bother? Because you know it's not going to work. You're not going to quit. So why even fight it? It's not worth it. Nothing's ever going to change. So why bother? When your heart tells you that like mine tells me that, right, you, have the, you have the confidence to know that's not true. Now, it may not look exactly like what you want it to look like. It may not mean that you quit that exact sin in your time frame. And, but, but you have the confidence to know that your efforts matter and that they are energized and supported by God himself. And that gives, man, that'll send you out into the Christian life with, with some boldness. All right, thirdly, finally, we've basically looked at our work and God's work and now here... I almost broke this into two sermons, so we're going to have to go fast. But Paul basically, in the, in the next uh, several verses, with 14 to 18, basically shows us, gives us a glimpse of what this looks like. What does true obedience really look like? And look, man, there's a ton of stuff here. But he basically says, look, do all things without what is it, grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. All right, wow, quickly. Here's what you need to know. Paul is referencing the Old Testament. Uh, and particularly, particularly Deuteronomy 32. And he, he's talking about uh, what Moses said about the Israelites uh, after they were, as they were wandering in the, in the desert. Uh, God, uh, Moses calls them a crooked and twisted generation because they grumbled against God. So if you remember this story, or if you don't, here it is. Uh, They're enslaved in Egypt for, what is it, 400 years. It's miserable in Egypt. They're oppressed. Terrible. And God brings them out. You know, all the plagues, uh, dumps it on Egypt, not on his people. He brings them out. He causes causes Egypt to give give Israelites all of their stuff. Like, it doesn't even make sense. Like, just go in here, take all our good stuff. They leave with all their stuff, and then there's the whole Red Sea, you know, incident where he parts it, and they walk through, and then he parts it back on top of them, and they're safe. And the whole point is he's marching them to their own land that's amazing. And he says, look, I've given you this land. It's yours. Go take it. And the, basically the whole time, like, they ju- like they, their heels get out of Egypt, and they start grumbling. And they say things like... Um, you know, did you just drag us out here to kill us? We don't, 
Literally one time they say, we don't have any food and the food that we have is terrible. We used to eat great back in Egypt. Okay, they didn't. They even begin to think like, I think we were better off in Egypt. And they grumble. That's the word it's used. They grumble against God. And so basically it's this idea that they look and they say, okay, we're going to follow God, but, but it just kind of seems dumb. I mean, we're going to do, we're going to follow, you're going to do what you want us to do, but it, the way you're going about it just seems stupid. Grumble, complaining, questioning. And Paul basically says, look, don't be like them. In light of the gospel, obey God. But he basically says, obey, obey God. What, what true obedience looks like? It looks like obeying God from your heart. That's what he, don't grumble or question. He calls us to an obedience that's from our hearts. You know, like when one kid hits another, uh, you know, never happens at our house, but supposing it did. One kid hits another, and what do you do? You say, you go tell your sister or your brother, you go tell them that you're sorry. And what do they do? They walk around and they go, sorry I hit you. All right, so they're obeying, but just on the outside. Right, that's, it's not real. It's, not, it's just external. And Paul's saying, that's not what true obedience looks like. And if you're like me, that's a pretty piercing thought because my heart operates like that all the time. Really by default. It's so easy for us, I think, if you're a believer, to think about the Christian life and, and to obey. You bring your actions in line, but the whole time your heart's just sort of grumbling. You know, maybe you work really hard to, um, to, to, live, uh, to bring your uh, sexuality in line, right? You want to live a moral life in that regard. So you're not hooking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, um, but you're doing it really just because you're supposed to. And so you're, you're, honestly, you think it's just kind of ridiculous and you're frustrated by it. Or maybe you give your money away, like the Bible says that you should, but you do it just because you're supposed to. Supposed to give money away, I'm a Christian, and so you're frustrated about it and, and you get mad about the way the church spends it maybe. Or maybe, maybe you don't cheat in class. Like, you've worked really hard, and, and, and you don't do that. But you don't do it because you're, you know you're not supposed to. Not, not from your heart, but because that's just not what Christians do, so I don't do it. And, and you're probably pretty angry at everybody else. And, and you might be angry with God because, look, they're getting away with it, and they're getting the good grades. And it just all seems dumb. So what's the point? And Paul basically says, look, that's not... That's not true obedience. He's calling us to something deeper. But how do you do that? We're going to end with this thought. How do you do that? Because, you know, it, I could stand up here all night and say, so obey God from your heart. Right? Like, okay, all right, write that down. Obey God from heart. But it's not easy. So what do you do? So I want to end with this, this thought. Paul gives us a different perspective here. We've got a bad perspective. Just like, wouldn't you love to talk to the Israelites and be like, okay, all right, look, everybody gather up. Okay, y'all are um, insane. Right, let's, let's rehearse. Your life was miserable. You hated it. God saved you in like ways that people would be talking about for at least the next three or 4,000 years. You got it pretty good. Can't you see that he's for you? 
They needed a different perspective, and Paul gives us one. And he basically says, look, don't be like them. Be like the children of God that you are. Right? He's been very clear about the gospel. They are children of God. So in other words, you can't read this as Paul saying, look, if you obey God from your heart, then you'll be his child. The Bible says, no, no, no. That's, that's been very clear even in Philippians. So what he's saying, he's saying, look, you are already loved, adopted as God's child. Now live like that's true. In other words, recognize that God is for you. That you, serve, you don't serve a slavish master. You don't serve a master slavishly, rather. You serve a master that's your father, that's for you. All right, quick exa- illustration of that. When I, when I was thinking about going to seminary, uh, I knew that I wanted to do REF if, if possible. Uh, this was, I think, right before we got married, maybe just after we got married. And I went and talked to uh, the guy that was in charge, the guy that would hire people to do RUF. And this is like 15 years ago. And I went and talked to him, and Amy and I were kind of thinking, like, we'd like to move to this one city and do seminary, because that was kind of the cool thing to do. And so I sat and talked to him about it, like, oh, give me your advice. And he says, we would love to have you do RUF one day. And uh, honestly, the best thing for you to do would be to come to Jackson. Uh, come here, uh, and for these reasons, I think that's, that, in fact, he actually said to me, you can either come to Jackson or mess up. <laughs> like, okay, thanks for the options. And so we parted ways, and Amy picked me up, and I got in the car, and I was so angry. And I was like, it's just so frustrating. Like, he, I mean, it's like he doesn't even give me a choice. And well, you know, I was just, grumbling about it. And Amy, very tactfully, said, I hear what you're saying, but I think there is a different way you could look at that. She said, all right, think about it like this. You want to do RUF when you get out of seminary. And you sat down with the one guy in the world that can make that dream come true. And he basically told you, I want that to happen for you. Here's how you do it. Here's how your dream can come true. And I can remember sitting there, yep. And then thinking, you know what? (laughs) I'm glad we're married. Like, that makes so much sense. It's a different, like, I think originally you were with me. You could probably see my perspective. You don't like to be told what to do. But what I realized, he's actually for me. He wants me to succeed. He wants me to see my dreams come true. And here they are coming true, right? RUF Camps Minister. So look, we're going to end with this thought. You have to see what can begin to motivate you to to obey God from your heart. You have to begin to see that God is for you. That he is for you as your father. That his law, like we said uh, last semester, I think, that his law is not a fence around an amusement park that you want to get in. And he says, no, not now. But it's, it's a fence around a pit of death. That he loves you. He's made you his child at his great expense. And so that his law, uh, his providence, even the difficult circumstances in your life, it comes from the hand of a God that loves you like a father and is for you. And the difference of that perspective will begin to work into us a, a a motivation to obey from our hearts and not just because I'm supposed to. In other words, what will motivate you is the good news of the gospel. That God left the glo- 
He left the glories of heaven. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, because he loves you. And that's the good news. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have loved us in such a way. Forgive us for the ways that we uh, grumble, that we question, uh, that, we, that we don't think that you're for us. Father, grow us. Help us to see the right perspective. And grow in us our efforts to obey you because you have loved us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.